it's all about speed because time is money. And no lighting designer will work if they're slow. You have to be fast and you have to be efficient. I might go do one show in Brazil, but then they're going to do five more without me. But hopefully they're learning things about what people from America or UK have taken there and taught them. After a week down there, like I almost forget that we're, we're not speaking the same language. Um, and it just feels like making a show in America. It's amazing to me how the language barrier quickly becomes not the number one problem that you think it will be. Welcome to the Theatre Art Life podcast and hello. We're putting the spotlight on those who create live entertainment around the globe, the culture creators and the backstage masters. My name is Anna Rob, And my name is Anna Aguilera. On this episode, we will be talking to Corey Parak about lighting design. This is our first episode speaking specifically about lights, but if you're interested on the matter, you should make sure you also listen to episode 24, where we speak to designer and theater consultant Don Kang. Corey Paddock is a New York-based lighting designer and the host of In One, the podcast. With credits on Broadway, Off-Broadway, in regional theatre and international productions, Corey is a proud member of the United Scenic Artists Local 829 and holds a Bachelor of Fine Arts degree in Design Technical Theatre from Syracuse University. Welcome to the show, Corey. Thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. It's so much easier being the guest on a podcast than being in charge of them. Fellow podcaster, it's exciting. <laughs> It's so, it's so, yeah, I don't have to prepare anything. It's wonderful. I love it. You're the guest. <laughs> Here I am. Thanks for having me. This is great. That's amazing. So tell us a little bit about more about you. How did you get into lighting design and also the podcast? I'd like to know about both of those things. I live in New York. I'm, I work as a lighting designer. I've lived in New York for 14 years now. So 2021 will be my 15th year here in New York. Um, I graduated in 05. I really didn't get into lighting design until uh, I went to college for lighting. Uh, prior to that, I had been a performer. I'd been an actor. I had had have wonderful, loving, supportive parents who let me explore every avenue of theater, which I sort of wanted to do. So for years, I was a performer. I they drove me to dance class and singing lessons and and acting class and uh, all sorts of things. I I. I'm a musician and I did piano lessons and drum lessons. And I just sort of was all over the map, uh, uh, like a good overachieving only child. And thankfully they supported all of those whims. Uh, but eventually I decided that uh, the design and specifically lighting design was something that really, really interested me. And I felt like I had a knack for it. Usually when I was still performing and found myself staring at the lights and forgetting my lines, because I was more interested in, what was happening around me design-wise than actually being in the show. And I also felt like I, even at 17, 18, I felt like it was going to be easier to make a living as a designer than as an actor, which by the way, is an extremely small margin. Uh, uh, it's still stupidly difficult to make a living as a designer too, but um, there's not quite as many of us. So yes, yeah, so I studied lighting design in college and then um, I've been doing it professionally you know, ever since, again, living here in New York, working in New York sometimes, less frequently recently, but then also working all over the world. Whoever will hire me. What motivated you to start the, the podcast? So, yeah, so I started this podcast. I always forget. So I, I sort of had the idea in 2012 
and I started releasing in 2013, which is insane that that we've been, I've been doing it for that. Oh wait, maybe I'm wrong. I think in 2013 started releasing in 14, so this is starting the seventh year, which is crazy. I like talking about design a lot. I'm super interested in process, and I love talking about how people arrived at the decisions that they did and why were things the way they were and how somebody lays out their design and how they, I'm just so fascinated in everyone's different process. And so I would have these conversations a lot with people. The problem is I was having them with people who didn't want to be having them because we were having dinner or having drinks at the bar and they just didn't want to talk about theater the entire time. So it occurred to me, I was like, you know, podcasts were getting really big. I mean, they were, they had been big, but it was before it sort of everyone had a podcast, uh, but but there were a lot of podcasts with like uh, writers and directors and actors. And I listened to all those and stand-up comedians and I loved them talking about their process. And so I thought somebody should make a podcast about designers process. And then I was like, well, I mean, someone should do it. Uh, and then I, at some point I was like, or I guess I could do it. I don't, I mean, I could learn how to do a podcast. So, uh, so I did. So I, I knew nothing about it. And then I learned uh, how podcasts work, which ultimately nowadays seems quite simple. I feel like it was a little harder to figure out seven years ago, eight years ago. And so I started asking some designers. I was like, would you listen to this? And would you come on it? And the answers were always yes. And so I started having all my friends and people I knew. And I pretty much run out of my friends by now. Uh, so now I'm like meeting new people, sometimes having people on who I don't know. But um, it started out as a hobby. And and suddenly I had a reason to talk for two hours. Also, you know, I I, I love like reading articles in trade magazines. There's things like um, there was Lighting Dimensions when I was a kid. And then, and then there was a big magazine called Entertainment Design, which was like the size of a coffee table. And now there are things like Lighting and Sound America and, and Live Design. And, and, I, and I always love reading those magazines, but you only get so much space in an article. And so it's usually, it's a little surface level. You don't really get to dig into the nitty gritty. And I always wanted the nitty gritty. And so the goal of the podcast was really to sort of get past the the surface level conversations and, and, and like talk for a long time. Like my episodes are notoriously long and I refuse to budge on that because I, I love long conversations. And if I was like 15 and wanted to hear about a Broadway light designer, I would listen to a 10 hour podcast if somebody made it. So they're long and they're in depth. And um, I finally got to have the conversations I love having. And then we can go to the bar and talk about non-theater things. Uh, so then I had a reason for doing it. And, and I just crossed a hundred episodes, uh, uh, which doesn't sound like a lot in six or seven years, but the problem is I'm a working designer. So I only do it when I'm available. And so sometimes that might only mean like five or six episodes a year. Because I usually, before COVID, I do with them all in person. So it's like getting someone together and I go to their apartment and we sit down and we block out like a couple hours and it takes time. And, and as I've gotten busier, I've had less time to do it. And uh, that's all it's ever going to be as a hobby. Uh, I, have, I frankly have no interest in actually putting any more work into it than I currently do, which is the exact amount of work I feel like doing on it. And I, and I love doing it. It's just me. But uh, it's always just going to be a hobby. And if I'm thankful enough to ever work again, uh, then, you know, if I don't have time to do them, then there'll be a big gap without them. And when I get bored, then I'll do another one. Well, I can only imagine how long it takes you to edit two hours of content. I don't edit it. No, that's the whole thing is that I don't edit it. The point is like, I may have a conversation with a set designer as if we were sitting at the bar, which is the conversations. That's how this started. And if you're a listener, you get to sit there with us. 
And I mean, granted, we know we're in front of a microphone. We're not going to like trash talk people, but there is no editing. We just talk. And, you know, I do some research and I have some ideas about things I want to talk about, but we, I love just going off subject and um, we just talk. And then if we talk for two hours, then I put out two hours uh, and I don't edit it. And the idea is that you just get to hang with a designer for two hours and just hear them talk about their lives and their work. And that everything else is edited and curated in our world, magazines and, you know, you know, YouTube videos that are 30 seconds. The whole point of this is that it's just, it's just unfiltered and we're just going to talk. So are you opening auditions or casting for new designer friends since you run out of? I mean, you joke, but I am, I mean, like I, I do need to meet more. It's so much easier to talk to people who are my friends. I've seen their work. I work with them, but I'm getting to the point now where like I'm interviewing designers who I don't know as well or, or, or I haven't seen their work or they work in a sector of the industry that I maybe don't see as much of. And so it actually is a little bit harder for me to figure out how to talk to people um, who I don't know so much about or we don't have shared history together, but it's a good way for me to meet new people. And frankly, as with every every piece of media in our world as it should be i'm trying to make my podcast more diverse and 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 actively reach out to people who i might not come across uh in sort of my everyday world whether that be professionally or socially and that means meeting meeting new people and i'm thrilled to have the podcast as sort of an icebreaker to go like i don't know this person but they seem cool maybe I could talk to them and then we'll be friends later, you know? Because after you chat for two hours, you are now friends, whether you like it or not, so. <laughs> I love it. Well, I'm sure if you need some people, Anna and I can throw you a few people your way for sure. We've got a, we have wonderful connections around the, around the globe with us, with our, with our gang. I suspect you might. I want to get back, back to you more a little bit in terms of, you know, I think sometimes we skip a really important conversation of like defining what is lighting designer and what is lighting design, what does lighting designer do? And in your interpretation, because especially I'm fascinated because in even in different parts of the world, there's a different interpretations of what that job entails. So for you, what is, what is that? What is lighting design and what does a lighting designer do? I should preface this by saying I really work primarily just in theatrical design. That's not to say I, I'm not interested in branching out, but right now that's what I do. So I'm not doing like corporate stuff or film and TV or theme parks or architecture. You know, those all have versions of lighting design. Uh, and we were here all night. We could talk about the variations, but specifically theatrical lighting design, which is what I do live theater. I like to say that a theater by default is dark, you know, unless you're doing outdoor theater, which which I also do, but if you walk into an empty theater, it's a dark room. Without a line designer, it's a radio play. All you can do is hear the actors. So we are responsible for every piece of light that comes onto that stage, um, because without it, it is just, it is a black box, it is a dark room. And so that involves everything from making sure you can see the actors, to making the scenery look pretty, to making sure the musicians can read their, their music stands, uh, to creating mood, to supporting the music. Um, literally all, all, everything that relates to, to the light in that room, with the exception of maybe the house lights and the work lights, that is the job of the line designer. Uh, and sometimes what we do is very utilitarian and we're doing things like helping tell an audience whether it's daytime or nighttime or it's hot or cold or indoors or outdoors. And, you know, an audience can't see the stage directions in a play, 
that, uh, that someone reading it could. So often we're doing some of those maybe slightly less exciting things, telling the audience that information. But then we also get to do the really fun stuff, which is make a flat piece of scenery look like it's 10 feet deep or, or support a really sad song with lighting that, that, that matches the emotional arc or make a scene look really scary. You know, we do all that emotional stuff and that that's where the fun is, but it's both of those things are critical. And if you only do one side of that coin, you don't do, it's not very good lighting. Uh, It's always about finding a balance between sort of what the lighting needs to do. So people can hear the actors and follow along and they don't fall asleep. And then also what's the fun stuff that, that, you know, we like to get into. So that's like the nuts and bolts of it. Obviously there's more to it, but. And you have some friends that you work on a regular basis, which would be the programmer, the board operator, and the master electrician. So who are they? So in this country, and I only say that because uh, I, I don't know, it might be different in some other parts of the world. I, I know I've run into this. Um, you know, the lighting designer is pretty much specifically just responsible for the design elements. That means that at like a professional theater, I'm not the one plugging in the lights. I'm not hanging the lights. I'm not climbing the ladders and the catwalk. I may not be doing the programming. I'm really just doing the design in the same way that a set designer is not building the set or a costume designer is not sewing the clothes. Now, it doesn't start out that way. When I started out 15 years ago, I was hanging the lights. I was climbing the ladders, just like my set design friends were painting their sets. Everyone does it eventually. But if you choose to just be a designer, hopefully, you get to a point where they pay people to do that who are usually better at it than you are, which is certainly in my case. So I'm only doing the design aspect. Now, of course, I'm in conjunction with conversations with the technical staff about what we can accomplish. I have no interest in designing something that can't be afforded, it can't be built in time, can't be loaded in with the crew that they have. That's a bad designer. So I'm always working within those constraints, but I'm really focused on the design. Um, so the master electrician, uh, which is a word we typically use in regional theater, or a production electrician, which is a word that's more common in commercial theater, um, they essentially mean the same thing, which is it's the it's the head lighting tech person who's taking my design and figuring out how to implement it. They are figuring out all the cable runs. They're making sure the building doesn't catch on fire because I've plugged in too many lights. They are wiring up the weird box that's supposed to light up when the lid opens, they're figuring out how to make that work. They're doing all the technical work. Um, and I could not do my job without them because I show up at the theater, the lights are hung, they're cabled correctly. They're not going to fall off the pipe, the right colors in the lights, everything works. That's all the, the electrician's job. Obviously they have a staff that works under them. The board op is, is really just someone typically who runs the show. Uh, now that may be someone who's with us during tech, or it may be someone who just comes in at the end of tech into sort of previews and the run of a show, but that's the person who's hitting the go button, uh, taking the cues called by the stage manager. They also would be responsible for a dimmer check, a lamp check every night of maintaining the show. If anything goes wrong, if a lamp blows, if a light loses focus, they're the one maintaining all that. Sometimes that person is also the programmer, especially at like regional theater, that may be the same person in commercial theater, like on Broadway or commercial off-Broadway, places like that. The programmer is a specialized job, just like a designer is a specialized job. And that's a person who's sitting at the light board and programming all the buttons uh, uh, based on the design that I'm trying to achieve. 
And so sometimes, like I said, sometimes that's me, frankly, and we can talk about those conversations. Sometimes it's the board op or the master electrician. Um, at the highest level, like on Broadway, uh, it is, a again, it's a unique job and they're only there for the tech and they're incredibly talented and, and uniquely skilled artists, just like designers are. And they are, are blazingly fast on these lighting consoles more so than any designers are. And they can achieve things and do things and work quickly in a way that designers cannot. And when you work with a really good programmer, you can just sort of speak uh, uh, artistically. You don't have to necessarily speak in a technical way. Depending on who's programming for me, I will change how I speak to them. And sometimes it might just be like, turn on the blue backlight. Or if it's someone else, I might say, take channels 51 through 59 and put them at full. You know, they might turn it on and I might go uh, at full, uh, that's at 50. Or I might just go uh, too bright, just take it down a little. And I'm asking them to use their eye and make it look good. And, and I know the skill level of the programmer before getting into it. So generally I know how I can talk to them. Uh, uh, and so that's a really important critical job sometimes on the team because it's all about speed because time is money and no lighting designer will work if they're slow. You have to be fast and you have to be efficient. And so you need someone who can efficiently implement the artistic ideas as they keep popping into your head. So the best programmers are, are really, really fast and, and I never have to stop talking and they just keep typing and they know what I'm doing before I even say it. And so that's sort of a basic breakdown. There's other people, assistants, associates and things like that uh, who work more directly with me. Uh, but that's sort of the breakdown of the team. That's really interesting. You, you also mentioned, you know, Broadway, off-Broadway, regional. And, and for those who are more international listeners, can you explain, you know, the nuances between those realms of, of theatrical productions and what are the major differences in regards to lighting? Yeah, so let's start at the at the quote top and sort of work our way down. So everyone is, knows what Broadway is. So, uh, I mean, they've heard of Broadway, but what does it actually mean? It's actually a very specific thing. A Broadway show has to be in a Broadway house. And the thing that makes a Broadway show a Broadway show is literally the piece of real estate that it's in. It has to be in a Broadway house. The Radio City Music Hall is not a Broadway house, which means that anything that happens on that stage is not a Broadway show. Same thing like New York City Center, which is a major theatrical venue in New York. That is not a, classified as a Broadway house. So things in it are not a Broadway show. Thereby, they're not eligible for the Tony Awards because that's only for Broadway. So there's actually only 41 Broadway houses in New York, uh, with the exception of Lincoln Center uh, up on like 66th Street. They're all within the theater district from 41st Street to, I'm trying to think what the most north, probably 55th, 54th is the highest street. Uh, uh, and then sort of between like uh, 9th Avenue and 6th Avenue. That's Broadway. And a Broadway house is also always more than 499 seats. Uh, and it is designated a Broadway house by the Broadway League. That makes it a Broadway house. If you're not seeing a show in one of those 41 buildings, it's not a Broadway show. There's then Off-Broadway, which is the next tier down. And there's different kinds of Off-Broadway, which I won't bore you with. But essentially, an Off-Broadway theater is between 99 and 499 seats, first off. It has to be in Manhattan. If you're a theater in Brooklyn, you can't be off-Broadway. Um, it has to be in Manhattan. And I think there are some other classifications, but that's really the, the meat of it, is the seat count and Manhattan. 
everything else in New York is considered off off Broadway. If you have a theater in Brooklyn, if you have a theater in Queens, if you have a 99 seat theater downtown, there are dozens of 99 seat theaters or less 50 seat theaters. Those are all considered off off Broadway. And that's where a lot of people get their start as I did. Um, and that's, you know, that's really confined to New York City. I mean, if you're doing a show in New Jersey and you're calling it off off Broadway, that's a pretty big stretch. Uh, but, it, you know, you really have to be in one of the boroughs of of New York City. So that's off off. And then we go into regional theater, which is all sort of theater in the US that's not based in New York. And now within regional theater there's all sorts of classifications, the biggest one being Lort Theater, the League of Residential Theater. I think I have that right. There are Lort theaters, I forget how many there are. There's like I don't know, 50, 70. I don't know, but there are a bunch of theaters and those are classified as Lort theaters. And again, they have their own classifications within LORT, but they have a collectively bargained agreement with the unions, with equity, with SDC, with uh, United Scenic Artists to pay people certain minimums. And, and there's all sorts of rules they have to follow that makes, uh, oh, here we go, League of Resident Theaters, 75. I was close when I says, I literally pulled that number out of my butt. So those are LORT theaters. And those would typically be like your highest tier regional theaters what we're not counting is like tours and roadhouses, which is a whole separate thing. A lot of those shows start in New York or places like that. So that I'm not sort of counting that. So you have regional theaters. A lot of them, 75 of them are considered Lort theaters, which are sort of probably often the best paying, the most prestigious things like that. Uh, and then you have like hundreds of non-Lort regional theaters. And sometimes there's actually really, really big, great theaters that also happen to not be Lort theaters. Um, it's a fluid thing. Theaters can leave Lort. New theaters can come into Lort. And so then, you know, you might have some of those. Obviously, there's community theaters, um, which typically only employ people from that community. And a lot of times those performers and designers, they may have other jobs that are the primary source of their income. So you might have community theaters. And then you've got all sorts of other theaters, summer stock, dinner theater, all, all kinds of theaters that are not community because they're being staffed by professionals, often in the union, but they're also not in Lort. Uh, so you've got a bunch of different classifications of those kinds of theaters. I work at all different kinds. You know, it's not like once, you, once you've worked on Broadway, you never work at a non-Lort theater. It doesn't work like that. We sort of bounce around to all different kinds uh, of theaters. Uh, so that's sort of the basic, basic classification. That's really interesting. I didn't. I, I think I've no, nobody has quite articulately explained that as you have. One question I have is that: Did the, a show that was on Broadway that then goes on tour are they typically going to Lort theaters, or like is that kind of the? Or are they not necessarily? No, I mean a Lort theater typically signifies a a producing organization that's creating a season of work. Um, you know, we have theatrical seasons in this country, which for most theaters is kind of your fall to through spring season. You might open a show in September or October. Last show might be in May. And then you hit the summer and you've got all your summer stocks. Now there are, there are absolutely some Lort theaters that are year round or do ver various combos of that. But it typically is not a year round thing. It is a season and there are subscribers and they are, they are producing their own shows or co-producing them or commissioning them. What you might get is a perfect example. 
you might have a small show like What the Constitution Means to Me, which was sort of, which was a play that played off Broadway with a very small cast. A show like that might not necessarily go on a proper, proper national tour with tractor trailers and people on planes and buses. But what they might do is go play in various regional lore theaters and like they'll take their set to each one of those places and there'll be, you know, perhaps team members that go to each place and 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 do that. I worked on a show for years called Daddy Long Legs, which uh, played dozens of regional theaters all over the country. It was never actually a tour, but a, the same group of people congregated at different regional theaters to put on the same show. And it can often be really lucrative for a regional theater because it means they don't have to build the set. They the, the show already exists, and you know maybe it's already hit. You know, Daddy Long Legs was a a very successful show, so you had reviews from other cities saying this is a great show we love this this was a sold out run so it's easy for then you to to put that in your theater so you're not going to have like a lion king or a wicked those are not going to go into lord theaters also because most lord theaters couldn't fit a show of that size lord theaters come in all shapes and sizes you've got thrust spaces you've got theaters in the round you've got some of them have no fly houses they're just not built to take tours and just plop them in. They're really uniquely designed spaces. And when we design for Lord Theaters, we're usually designing specifically for that venue and its its idiosyncrasies. Whereas national tours of the of the shows that, that we think of are going into a roadhouse, which is a very generic proscenium style theater that's got, you know, 75 line sets and a 50 foot wide proscenium. And you can just plop any show into there. So you'll only get sometimes those those small shows where it makes more sense to do kind of a mini regional theater tour. But I will say, and this is a thing I, I, I try to always talk about, is that sometimes from the subscriber's point of view, they don't know the difference between like a homemade show and a national tour that's maybe playing in their Lort theater, you know, or a show that started in New York, or a national tour that's playing at their local roadhouse downtown. And I always try to, to, to really make sure that patrons understand when I get to talk to them that generally the shows that I'm doing for them, we are making that specifically for them in their town. I can't tell you the number of times audience members go, where, where is it going next? Oh, where do you, where do you, because they just think, they think that all shows are Lion King and then we just put it all on a truck and take it, take it to the next theater. And, and for most regional theaters, that's not the case. Sadly, when the show closes, it usually goes in the garbage. Uh, that's how theater works. And so, I often, along with artistic directors, we really try to make, to educate audiences to understand that the thing that they are getting is unique. This production of this show will probably never happen again. The only people who get to see it are the people in this specific town and this specific city. And that's a really big deal. And when audience members realize that, I think they take more pride in that theater. They're more likely to make a donation or become a subscriber when they realize that they're getting a unique experience that's just for them. But we have to educate audiences so they understand the difference between the Lion King tour and the West Side Story that I do at their theater that only runs for two weeks, because those are two very different things. You also worked in Brazil and Colombia, am I right? So how does that compare to working in the United States? I did one show in Colombia. That was the first thing I did. And then I've, I've since then done two shows in Sao Paulo in Brazil. How does it work differently? Well, you know, there just, there isn't necessarily the history of 
theater making or the, this kind of theater making. I was doing musicals, what you might call Broadway style musical theater, the kind of show you might see if you went to a Broadway theater and saw a musical. That's what they were interested in making. And there isn't necessarily the, the sort of history of that in those countries. So often there is a lot of educating, educating the, the actors, the crew, the, the other designers about sort of how theater is, is made, you know, in America, if that's what they're interested in doing. And a lot of times that's why I'm brought, I or a director or other designers are, are brought to a place like that is because they, they want the, the local people who work there to work alongside people from America who do this all the time. And then, you know, I might go do one show in Brazil, but then they're going to do five more without me. But hopefully they're learning things about what, people from America or UK have taken there and taught them. So that's one big thing. I mean, another thing, you know, uh, America is, is always that, like, um, if you're, you know, on time is five minutes early and not early is late. I've just completely bungled that phrase, but you know what I mean? Early is on time and on time is late, right? Like in America, like it's all about like the, the dollar and like watching the clock and in a lot of other places, South America, places like that, frankly, even places like Miami, Everything sort of like a 10 a.m. start is sort of like 10-ish. There isn't necessarily a sense of urgency. And that's not necessarily a, a bad thing. It's a cultural thing. And frankly, I think some people, probably including me, could, would do better to like take a breath every once in a while and like have a longer breakfast and get to the theater when you get there. But it is a bit of a, a shift when I go to a place like Brazil and I say, we're going to start, you know, at a certain time. And then, you know, it feels more like a flexible time or a suggestion. The work always gets done. The work is always good. You know, it's just, it's just always a shift that I need to make uh, in sort of how that kind of efficiency that we move through things, you know, in New York as opposed to other places. Also, you know, there's the language barrier, which can't be overlooked, which every time I go, I always think is going to be a bigger thing than it is. And the first couple of days, it's always like, I mean, I don't speak Portuguese. Uh, um, and so it always feels like it's going to somehow make the process really, really hard. And, you know, after a week down there, like I almost forget that we're, we're not speaking the same language. Um, and it just feels like making a show in America. And, then, and the shows are in Portuguese. I'm watching them be performed in Portuguese. I don't know what they're saying, but, you know, I know the show because I've read the script. And, and so sometimes I forget that they're not speaking English. Um, so it's amazing to me how the language barrier quickly becomes not the number one problem that you think it will be. Um, so that's a little bit. Also, I mentioned earlier that I do some programming. I've programmed my my stuff in South America uh, because generally it's just hard to find a, pro, a local programmer down there who A, speaks English, but also like I, I'm not a bad programmer. I, I can work fast enough when I'm programming for myself. And so it's usually like, if there's not a local programmer who's going to be faster than I am, then then it's just going to drive me crazy. And so I know for everyone and, and me, it will be easier if I just do it and it will keep me calmer and, and I won't feel the anxiety of like trying to, to, to wait with someone else. Uh, and so a lot of times in those instances, I need someone else to deal with follow spots and speak in a, another language with those crew members, whereas programming can be sort of an isolating job and I can just sit behind the console and do that, and then let let the people who speak the local language sort of interface with the crew. I found that works better. What's your lighting desk of choice? 
I only know the EOS consoles. You know, I learned on ETC consoles uh, uh, growing up with the the Express and then the Obsession, the Obsession 2, and then the EOS. And I don't know Grand MA and Hog and those things. Uh, there are fantastic programmers who do know those uh, boards. And if I ever get in a position to use those, which is very rare uh, because they're not super, super common in theater, then I just need to have a, a really smart programmer who knows what they're doing. But a lot of times I will, you know, if it's a certain kind of show, I will say like, I need an EOS. Like, uh, uh, if you want me to come to your country and do this musical, you have to find an EOS or a console in the ETC line, ION, whatever. Um, because that's that's what I know. It's, this, it's the gold standard in theater. Uh, when programmers talk about desks, is it like, is it like, are you a Mac or PC person? Is it that kind of conversation where people are just like, well, this is my this is my brand or is it just mostly in theatrical that people are using EOS systems and that's that's what it is I think people maybe have a preference but again I'm mainly talking to theater people I'm not I'm not talking to a lot of like rock and roll programmers you won't find EOS consoles consoles on rock and roll shows you know those are all grand MAs that's what you're going to find on the Olympics and you're going to find on Super Bowl and all of those things and someday I hope to light all that stuff and then you know I was supposed to do a cruise ship show for a a different line that I've worked for previously it was going to be this last year it's a new year so last year uh, and that that cruise ship line uses uh, uh, grand ma consoles so if that show ever happens again um i will be having to work with one and work and working with a programmer really in theater and on broadway for a long time you still had some holdouts some grand ma's and things like that but it's very very rare to see any console on on a broadway show on a new york you know, theatrical show anymore that's not an ETC console. And all the programmers know it. It's one in terms of theater. So there's not a ton of debate anymore. Amazing. Corey, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate you coming on Theatre Art Life and sharing your experience. It's been wonderful to get to know you. You're very welcome. Of course. Thank you. It was great chatting with you guys. We would love to hear from you, our listeners, on who you would like us to feature on this podcast or what topics fascinate you. There is a link in our podcast description where you can send us your requests and guest nominations. Theater Art Life provides regular monthly webinars and podcast episodes for free. If you have the means, donations can be made via a link in the podcast notes. We would be thankful for any support you can give us. You can learn more about Theater Art Life, the global media site for entertainment, at www.theaterartlife.com. And you can follow us on all social media platforms. We want to thank David Sire for composing the music for our podcast. We are your hosts, Anna and Anna, and this is the Theatre at Life podcast.